I'm delighted to be here tonight to launch the Origin Speaker Series in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee. This gathering is intended to elevate the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and growers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish, shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses, and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that farmers and producers are doing in our area. The conversation is being held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Tonight's program will be a conversation with Dr. William Moise Weaver, an internationally known food historian, author, teacher, gardener, and epicure. Dr. Weaver is the steward of the Roughwood Seed Collection, which houses over 4,000 heirloom food plants. Dr. Weaver is also the director of the Keystone Center for the Study of Regional Foods and Food Tourism, located in the historic Lamb Tavern in Devon, Pennsylvania. The Keystone Center is an independent research institute unaffiliated with state or private industry organizations. Its primary purpose is the survey, documentation, and promotion of Pennsylvania's five regional food identities, their related culinary cultures in Europe, and their diasporas within the United States. Now I'd like to turn the program over to Dana Slater, the producer of the Origin Speaker Series. Without further ado, I just want to uh, introduce our only panelist tonight. Uh, this is a little bit of a different format. We've had multiple panelists in the past, so we're thrilled that this is kind of a one-on-one with all of you tonight with uh, Dr. William Wise Weaver. It's a mouthful, but <laughs> W3, as he's like to be known. So as part of tonight, everybody's getting a nice gift um, with their ticket. So you'll get an autographed book of Dr. Dr. Weaver's latest book. He'll personalize it for you afterwards if you'd like. So um, without further ado, I'm going to turn everything over to Spike. Thank you very much. And thank you for making the trip down. This is, I can't tell you how excited I've been about this talk and this meal and uh, uh, for so long, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, we got to visit you up in Kutztown at your garden, right. and um, we're inspired by that for sure. But, you know, where this, this conversation started for me way before you ever knew about Woodbury or what we were doing is with the fish pepper. And I wanted to talk about that um, first because it's become so important to us. Um, and you essentially are the guy, you are, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you are the link between the fish pepper as it was grown around the Chesapeake uh, in the past, and our ability to have it at all—is that true? Uh, that, that Am I is, overstating it no, at no, all? Because no, no, I'm actually, an excitable person. So, say I, I, I was its midwife, uh, uh, making it famous. Uh, although I never realized that would happen. Uh, the fish pepper is an old uh, pepper that is striped. It, it's white with green stripes. Then it goes through various color changes. It was used uh, by the. Uh, the, the black chefs in the Chesapeake area um, with fish and shellfish, basically. You could take the white pepper and dry it so that you would have a white cayenne so it wouldn't discolor your sauces, that sort of thing. That's all I know about its history. Uh, the fish pepper came to my grandfather in the 1940s. Uh, my grandfather collected seeds, and uh, he got the fish pepper, one of several peppers, from... Uh, uh, an African-American painter in Westchester, Pennsylvania, whose name is Horace Pippin. He's very famous. Horace was a friend of my grandfather's. And Mr. Pippin had a, a bad arm. I think it was his left arm. It was injured in World War I. 
So he couldn't drive, and that's why he took up painting, because he had one arm to, to make good. So he visited my grandfather. I'm not sure how they got to know one another. Maybe it was through my grandfather's pigeon club, which met at a, what they called a tap room in those days, um, down the alley from where Mr. Pippin uh, lived. But anyway, Mr. Pippin came to visit my grandfather, basically to get stung by my grandfather's bees. My grandfather had honeybees. He had a garden, he had honeybees, and racing pigeons, and you know, the whole nine yards. Um, so my grandfather didn't particularly like the idea of, of wasting his bees um, that way, and he was a bit worried, I think, also, that he might get in trouble with uh, the medical uh, uh, profession for... Uh, all right, is that okay now? Um, for uh, administering some sort of remedy. But it's, it is an old folk remedy of getting stung for arthritic conditions. So Mr. Pippin would bring my grandfather seeds for rare and beautiful peppers, and the fish pepper was one of them. So that's how it came into our seed collection, uh, with this very tenuous story. But it came in through Mr. Pippin, and then... Oh, my grandfather died in 1956, and I found the seed collection in the deep freezer in the 60s and revived all of this stuff and started growing it again. And I offered the fish pepper uh, through Seed Savers Exchange, just sent seeds out for free, and then it took off a life of its own. So uh, the Roughwood Seed Collection is now going 501c3 nonprofit. We'll be online with our own website hopefully by January, and we're going to be selling the fish pepper there, the original strain that we've kept alive, because I'll tell you, there are fish peppers out there being sold by seed companies, and they don't look like the fish pepper we grew. So it's wandered, you know, it, there's a genetic problem when you're saving seeds. You have to row your plants and all of that. So that's the story of the fish pepper. I never realized that it would go out into the world and then become part of somebody's hot sauce. <laughs> uh, all, all the more power to it. But actually, this is, this is poetic justice because it's gone back now to doing what it was meant to do, heat up food. It not, it's not just a, a mummified historical plant. It's something that's being used in everyday cookery, which that makes me very happy. That's what I'm all about. And we are too, which is, I think, one of the reasons I'm so excited tonight to talk to you. Um, fish pepper has become an incredible kind of living part of our cooking at Woodbury. It, it, it is a condiment, obviously, as a snake oil hot sauce. And it is, um, we dry it and we pickle it. Uh, we do just about everything you can do with a fish pepper. Um, and I love having that in our pantry, kind of as it were. I'm gonna, I'd like to shift now to kind of what I think is your life's work, which is kind of the documentation, as Dana said earlier, of Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. And I think um, I'm just astounded to start to realize how little I knew about it, even though it's our neighbor just north of us across the Pennsylvania line, and how, I guess, how much I, I thought I knew of it was actually wrong. Um, I've just picked up your book, uh, As American as Shoe Fly Pie, which I think I'm going to go out and say it. It's a masterpiece. It's, uh, you know, you, a lot of your other books have been on my shelf for a long time and they've inspired us, but this is, um, I don't know, this is, is moving us in a different direction. And um, tonight, after we uh, talk, we're going to eat a little bit of some of the recipes um, out of some of these books, including As American as Shoe Fly Pie. Um, but I would love it if you could just start us off with kind of a description or a definition 
of Pennsylvania Dutch, I guess, first as a, as a place, as a location, um, maybe then Pennsylvania Dutch as a culture as, a, and how it can be described or understood as, you know, the people. And then finally, um, Pennsylvania Dutch as a cuisine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you have... No. Um, That's three weeks. <laughs> but, and I, no, and I would say because it's... One of the things that I, this become, becomes clear as you read uh, As American as Shoe Fly Pie is that uh, the conflation of, of Pennsylvania Dutch and Amish, yeah. which I would say I was guilty of, is, um, is, is about as wrong as can be. And for a lot of reasons, both kind of at the, in the early, you know, as Pennsylvania Dutch became a, a, an American cuisine, and then as, as also as it was commercialized later on and kind of meant to serve other purposes. Well, I did another book earlier on. This got uh, a Julia Child Cookbook Award, the Pennsylvania um, Dutch Country Cooking. I go into a lot of the roots uh, of the cuisine in that book. Uh, it's very beautifully illustrated. But it doesn't really tackle the questions that you have raised. And uh, as an outgrowth of my doctoral work in Ireland, they, they told me, uh, since I'm the first person to get a, a degree in food ethnography, um, and a great honor for me, but also it was a, a trial balloon for them. Uh, they wanted me also to birth at least three books based on my doctoral work because they really wanted to see this idea turned into something um, concrete, and a book is a good way to, to pass, around, pass the word around. So... Um, this book is probably, I would say, book one in that series of three as an outgrowth of the um, food ethnography. I'll get into that in a minute. What does that mean? In other words, uh, I did my doctoral work on food tourism in Pennsylvania. They said, take something in your backyard. Um, by the way, I'm doing a book on the medieval foods of Cyprus, so Pennsylvania Dutch isn't my only shtick. Um, <laughs> But uh, I happen to be Pennsylvania Dutch, so why not start there? Uh, also, I come from a family that really uh, has a long line of good cooks. In fact, I think if you go to Pennsylvania, you'll discover a Weaver Food Mafia. We sort of are into every kind of food business going with the name Weaver on it. But anyway, um, I started to ask questions. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, uh, the person standing over my shoulder was the late Dr. Don Yoder at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been called the father of American folk life. Um, he happened to be my cousin, and I took care of him for 40 years until he passed away in August. Um, so I had him as sort of this uh, eminence grige, if you will, in the background, bouncing ideas off in, uh, him, and he would ask questions that were very difficult to answer, but he wanted me to figure them out. So. That is what went into this book. First of all, who are the Pennsylvania Dutch? Where are the Pennsylvania Dutch? And how, how did they come to be? Well, uh, I think they're probably one of the most misunderstood of all the regional food cultures in the US. They're probably one of the most important, and I don't say that because I come from them. When you figure that the region in Pennsylvania that they settled com comprises 25 counties, not just Lancaster. That's just one little piece of it. Um, 25 counties, the same size as Switzerland. Now, when you think of Switzerland and all of the uh, 
the variations in culture and climates and agriculture. In that one little small country, we've got the same kind of differences in, in the Pennsylvania Dutch country. We've got Somerset County, well, for me it's out there, but for you it's up there, um, where we've got only half the county is Pennsylvania Dutch, that would be the southern half. It flows over into Maryland, and by the way, you've got a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch on this side of the border, and they're a part of your food culture too. That's what we call the diaspora, the spreading of these people. Um, Somerset County is probably one of the highest producers of maple sugar in the United States, more than Vermont. We export to Vermont so that they can uh, dilute theirs and sell it as Vermont grown. Um, so we've got a whole food culture out in Somerset County where we've got shoe fly pie made with maple syrup, not molasses. Um, shoe, um, maple, maple syrup apis cakes, I mean, on and on and on. Maple sugar whoopie pies. Um, so, you know, when you start making lists of what you can find in all these little county areas and the subcultures and the small regions, one valley to the next seems to have its own specialty. So what I did is I set out to make a list. Okay, what's out there? I got up to 1,600 dishes that are not known in restaurants or in any cookbooks, but they're still made in homes. And that's where I started to think, this is where it's going to go in this book. And I'm working on another book called Dutch Treats, which is all about the baking traditions. That'll be out for Christmas next year. Full color, by the way. 100 <laughs> recipes, 100 cakes and pies. and Anyway, just what you need for your Christmas calories. Um, so I started making lists, and it, was, it surprised me, because if there is a, uh, a cuisine in Europe that comes close to what our classic cuisine is like, it, it would be in Alsace, in France. But that is a, that's a, you know, a, one of these double cultural regions because it's the German-French combination, whereas we have the English-German combination. Um, so the, the, there are all these hybrids that take place. Shoe fly pie, for example, would be a good, uh, a good example of this, where you take an American pie crust, typical pie crust, and you bake a, a Streuselkuchen in it, a, a crumb cake. So that's a hybridization. And this is the kind of thing that's been taking place in Pennsylvania for 300 years. We've got all these unusual dishes that just evolved there. And so where are the Pennsylvania Dutch? Well, we've got a map, it's 25 counties, and you can go online to uh, the Keystone Center, and we've got our food regions, and there is the, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch region, which is the largest, by the way, in Pennsylvania. It's dead center in the state. But it, it jumps over the mountains into Ohio. It comes down here into uh, Maryland and Valley of Virginia. So there are just all these influences all over the place. Um, who are the Pennsylvania Dutch? Well, Dr. Yoder at Penn, and I prefer to use the word Pennsylvania Dutch as opposed to Pennsylvania German, for, one, for several good reasons. First of all, I have no German ancestry, so why should I call myself Pennsylvania German? My people came from Switzerland. Trust me, the Swiss don't like being called German. Um, on, the other, on the other side of the coin is we don't really have 
a good name for the culture. The Cajuns are lucky. We know who the Cajuns are, and we don't call them Louisiana French. Um, the other thing is, uh, these people who came over from Europe, from the German-speaking parts of Europe, and settled in Pennsylvania and in Maryland, um, they, they ceased to be Germans as soon as they stepped on shore. Um, they started to use buck, uh, buckwheat that was being grown here, cornmeal, uh, started to use the, the, the pots and pans that the English used. So right away, they adapted to the new world. And what happened is in the course of 300 years, they started coming in the 1680s, in the course of 300 years, this culture developed its own identity. It's not Germany in America. It is its own, it's its own culture, and Pennsylvania Dutch language is a, a distinct language apart from German now. It's recognized as, it's no longer a dialect, it's, it's its own language. And it has its own words, which Germans don't, Germans don't understand. Um, you know, uh, Eisenbahn in German is the railway. We say Regelweg, railway, you know, it comes out of English. Um, the Pennsylvania Dutch word for pie, boy, where does that come from? English, pie. So we've got all of these words that were Dutchified, if you will, and that created this, this new language. And I discovered that probably the best way to get a handle on the culture is to look at the food, because that's, it. that's what they eat at home. And you have to realize, in the 1840s, the state of Pennsylvania instituted a public school system based on the Prussian school system. They were very impressed with the Prussian school system because it had been set up in Prussia, in areas that had been part of Poland at one point, to Germanize these Polish people. And they figured if, they, if the Prussians can do this with the Poles, we can do it with the Dutch. So the, the basic, the basic um, thrust of public education, in Pennsylvania at least, into the 1880s and 90s, was to wipe out the Dutch culture. My great-grandmother was beaten in front of the other students for speaking Dutch in school, on the playground. And she was made by the teacher to swear on a Bible that she would never speak Dutch again. Now, she was a Mennonite. They don't take oaths. This really messed her up the rest of her life. But that kind of thing went on all over the state. And now it's really ironic because we, we have these what we called state normal schools that were set up, Millers, Millersville, Kutztown uh, uh, University. They were set up by the state to, to uh, teach the teachers English only in the public schools. So there was a reason for those schools plotted in the, in the Dutch country. Now it's, it's completely gone the opposite way. Kutztown University is teaching Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, so it, it's just come full circle because what happened was the Dutch didn't die out. They just went underground with their culture. They started writing poetry and they started writing cookbooks because they could, and the food stayed in the home because this was, this was safe territory. This is where you could be Dutch and you could talk Dutch to your grannies and whatever. And so the food tradition basically stayed in, on the home front or in the farmhouse, and it never went out into restaurants because it was too public. And then in the 30s, this is what I go into in my book, and nobody's gone into this um, area because it's very, very, um, it's kind of scary if you want to think about it. 
why do people think of the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch equals Amish? First of all, the Pennsylvania German Society was, was founded in the 1890s um, because they were reacting to this, this, this state um, campaign against the culture. But it was, it was a kind of negative reaction in a sense because the Pennsylvania German Society was set up basically for well-to-do people of Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry um, who could claim pure blood back ten generations. So it really wasn't about culture. It was about, like D.A.R., where you came from. And, um, or as one of the Pennsylvania scholars called it, it's all about dated blood. You know, it's so blue it coagulates. <laughs> but anyhow, um, I thought I'd better stay away from the Pennsylvania German Society altogether because uh, while they publish, um, they've really missed the boat. They're dying out anyway. It's just a, a, a group of old people. There are no young people coming, coming into this. Um, we decided we liked Pennsylvania Dutch better because, A, that's what the Pennsylvania Dutch call themselves, and the word Dutch is Old English. You will read, if you read Shakespeare closely, he talks to people uh, coming from the Rhine Valley as Dutchmen. And it's, just, it's just Old English to use that word Dutch. I'm not particularly happy with it because I wish we had something else to call ourselves. But in the meanwhile, I use the word Pennsylvania Dutch in all my books, and that's why. Okay, now what we... So we're getting into the <laughs> 20s and 30s. Okay. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. I, I, we should have written these in, in chalk. Um, anyway, uh, what happened is that there was a revival in the culture. And in the 19-teens and 20s, people began to discover Pennsylvania Dutch folk art. Henry DuPont, um, uh, Kesey's collection is in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And all of a sudden, it became really fashionable to buy Frochter and quilts, and people became interested in the culture. Outsiders buying objects, but at least they were becoming interested in it and respected it. And this, this actually kicked in a huge revival in the food. And in the 20s, we had a group of people who wanted, they called themselves the Society of Pennsylvania German Gastronomes, but they used the word German because H.L. Mencken was a member of this, and he's from Baltimore, and he liked the word German for some reason. But anyway, um, they were interested in promoting what they called New Dutch Cuisine, Nydeutsch, Küche. So this was a revival, you will, taking the old traditional recipes, reinventing them, and putting them in restaurants. And we had even a few country hotels where this was being done. Unfortunately, this whole movement gets uh, hijacked by the Amish. And the reason for it is very clear. In 1933, Hitler came to power in Europe. And the Pennsylvania Dutch were very worried that they were going to be connected with all those awful things that were happening, happening in Europe. And very quickly, the tourism bureaus in Lancaster, and uh, particularly Lancaster, I think they're the, mo the most guilty in this, in this one, um, start promoting the Amish, because the Amish are totally the opposite of Nazis. They're pacifist, pacifist farmers, all right? Uh, you know, they live this, for the outsider, this idyllic life of, you know, peace and plenty. And all of the magazines um, in, 
in the 30s that talk about the Amish always invoke these images because what they were really doing for political reasons was using the Amish for isolationism. You know, there was a big movement before we were pulled into World War II of staying out of it, and the Amish were, were held up as a symbol of that. And what happened is a couple of tourism people in Lancaster latched onto the Amish even more by putting Amish on their menus. And it, the funniest thing, I never thought I would learn all of the details I do, but I interview people who are still alive. And the things you hear in interviews, it's all on tape, so it's there for anyone in, in the future. I interviewed a lady uh, in Lancaster who knew about the, was called the German uh, village. It was uh, a Ratzkeller, all right? It was open all night long. The man who owned it owned a bus company. So he took tours of Lancaster and brought them back to his Ratzkeller, and they ate, quote-unquote, Pennsylvania Dutch food. And he used that word. But he had little Amish people all over his menus. He had Amish tchotchkes in the shop, you know, bookends, all that kind of stuff. This was the beginning of this marriage of the idea, Pennsylvania Dutch and Amish. And Anne Hark, who was one of the writers in that period, wrote a book called Hex Marks the Spot. Hex, you know, we have witchcraft in Pennsylvania. It's still alive and well, by the way. Um, they even have Walpurgis Night, burn fires on mountaintops. Um, anyway, um, she wrote a book, and, and the last chapter is called Dinner at, oh, what's it? Anyway, one of the Amish families, common name. It's totally made up. She didn't really have dinner with these people, but she wrote this, this creative essay about, about going to eat dinner with people who lived like the 1600s, which is totally wrong. Amish bonnets are, taken, are copied off of the Quaker bonnets. I mean, Amish quilts are copied from American quilts, but they've changed the colors around. So, I mean, most of what is Amish popular culture is really absorbed from mainstream culture, okay? Just like whoopie pies, which came from New England. Yeah. They were not invented in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you must be from Boston. <laughs> mm. Anyway, so um, the German village was the first place, that's, you might say, ground zero for this whole Amish Pennsylvania Dutch story. And uh, almost overnight, it goes from um, Ratzkeller to this very strange hybridized Pennsylvania Dutch place to eat, family-style restaurant. Well, it was a family-style restaurant during the day, but I learned from my interview that the alley behind this place backed right on to the police station in Lancaster. And uh, this place was open all night. And what, what I discovered in the interviews is, put your hands over your ears. <laughs> um, the ladies of the night worked the, uh, worked the, uh, the, um, the village in at nighttime, because it was open 24-7. You know, there was a bus station there, ample traffic with traveling businessmen. And why didn't the cops close it down? I found out the Lancaster cops got a discount on Thursdays. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> um, How do we get from Amish to... Amish? Well, <laughs> but, but you know, as I said in my book, and this is where the Amish 
uh, kind of cuisine myth. Uh. myth was born. <laughs> and I used that uh, in a word it, you know, intentionally. So, I mean, when you, when you start looking at the truth about how this all happened, it's just the weirdest story. I could never have made it up. Uh, but then it, this Amish thing takes off. One guy copies the other, and by the early 50s, it, Amish is everywhere and is equated as Pennsylvania Dutch. And when I go to California and lecture out there, and I tell them I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, they can't figure out why I don't have a beard and a big, broad-rimmed broad hat. I'm 13th generation Pennsylvania Dutch. I don't have a drop of Amish in me. I'm a wet Dutchman, too. <laughs> Trust me, the Amish drink. Um, behind, you know, behind closed doors. But anyway, um, so that Amish thing, happily, um, it's, now, it's now changing because they've, it's sort of run its course. You can only do so much with Amish cookbooks, and if you buy any of them, you'll find out that the recipes probably came out of Good Housekeeping 1951. Um, nothing much to brag about, and nothing traditional. Um, they love pizza. Um, actually, they, they would eat pizza 24-7 if they could. I interviewed a, a deacon. A, I have a quote right in here. I interviewed, a, I interviewed Amish people to ask them about this. And the deacon's wife, um, they have, they have uh, family groupings of about 40, you know, for each one of their little um, their churches. And they, uh, they have religious service one week, and then they have social the next. So they alternate. And when they, when they have their social uh, gatherings, they like pizza. I, I asked, what do you serve? I was hoping to get, you know, this long list of beautiful traditional recipes. Oh, no, pizza. And they, have to, they can't make enough pizzas because they need about 200, you know, because they've got all of these kids. And so they, they, have to, they have to send out. But she said, we have to call the different pizza parlors and stagger it because they'll fight each other if they... If both if the trucks arrive at the same time because it's competition, you know. Um, they have it all worked out. Of course, the Amish pay cash, so these guys love it. But they don't waste any of those pizzas because they give the crusts to the horses. Um, it's on and on. So I, I, I got that quote and put it in the book because I thought it's classic. Um, I mean, if you go to Shady Maple, which is a big, like, open, it's like a mall where you can buy really cheap food, not, not a, not, nothing very little of it is grown in Pennsylvania. It comes from somewhere else, who knows? Guatemala. Anyway, um, the Amish women are up in there buying because it's very cheap, and you'll and they're buying frozen pizzas. They have refrigerators. They run on bottled gas. You know, you have this idea that they're cooking on, you know, black old coal stoves. It's not not true at all. They've got windmills making electricity for them. That kind of thing. In fact, this deacon's wife, who I interviewed, I said, I have to get down the road because I have another family to interview. I forgot my cell phone. Is there any way we can get in touch with my ride? She said, not a problem. She trots down the front walk. You know, there's a picket fence, and there is this gate, and there's a pole with a birdhouse. I thought, this is great. Swallows. Oh, no. She opens the birdhouse and takes out a landline. <laughs> she keeps it outside the house in this this little funny birdhouse. So anyway, <laughs> it's legal that way. Um, so um, we could go on and on. Yes. The, the, the stories are just, it's, it's amazing. Anyhow, so, so much for Amish. <laughs> amazing. And, you know, again, uh, um, amazing to learn after all this time. I think we all have this, I certainly had this sense of 
this misplaced idea that Amish and Pennsylvania Dutch were somehow synonymous. Um, I guess what I'm concerned about is now that I, I, I understand a little bit more about it and, and the fact that there is this incredible, diverse, rich cuisine that's happening, or it happened, I guess, um, here in this region, and, and, and is, where, where, is it, where does it live now? I mean, you characterize it as, as or the Pennsylvania Dutch, as, as people that are, are, have a, a focus on their landscape, which I loved. Yeah. That's something that I think we share. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I guess I didn't really answer the question about who are the Pennsylvania Dutch. That is, that's the complicating factor. The Cajuns in Louisiana are all are all basically Roman Catholic, so they they share a common bond. The Pennsylvania Dutch are made. The community is made up of Roman Catholics, Mennonites, Amish, Moravians, Lutherans, German Reformed. I mean, umpteen lots of different little religious groups, and not all of them see eye to eye, and not all of them think that the other ones are authentic Pennsylvania Dutch. So there, so there is this big culture with lots of mixed mixtures, people who came from Hesse, Saxony, Bavaria, the Palatinate, Westphalia. They all spoke um, different dialects. They didn't think of themselves as Germans. And... Um, and the Swabians, they were probably the most important of the groups. So you see what happened is these different um, regional cultures from Central Europe came together in Pennsylvania and then melded into one. And I think the Swabians probably have left the biggest mark on the culture because they're the, they, were, they were like the Chinese of the Pennsylvania Dutch community. They opened the shops, the breweries, the pretzel bakeries, and ran the hotels. So they were really the front line of the food world in, in that sense. And if you look at the names, well, our beer, Yingling, they're Swabians. That's, Yingling is a Swabian name. So uh, I would say what happened is they, the culture came together and then created a, uh, a unique uniform identity. Uh, it, we, we've undergone a, 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 an arts revival, pottery, all the handcrafts are well uh, right now, although a lot of the people making them can't speak the dialect anymore. Uh, the, the, I think the cookery has suffered uh, because of the decline of the, of the dialect, because when you lose the food terms, you lose the concepts that go with them and what makes them different. In my book that I'm working on right now, for example, I have a chapter on a dish called Dutch, D-A-T-S-C-H. It's somewhere between, oh, uh, corn, corn, southern corn pudding and bread. <laughs> it's, it's, it's baked, so it's, it's yeast raised, but it's somewhat heavy, and you can break it up and, excuse me, create dumplings out of it if you want. It's a very, very... Um, homey farmhouse dish, but I decided I would do ten for the book to show the variations that you can have with fruit, pawpaw, um, pawpaws and sweet corn, I mean all the local things that you would never find in German cooking, mm -hmm. which is what makes us different. You won't find shoefly pie in Germany either. It didn't come over on the boat. Um, so uh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, these baking traditions and, and trying to record them. And that's one of the things I'm hoping that the Keystone um, Center can do. Um, 
we have five regions in Pennsylvania, not only the Pennsylvania Dutch. I think I better just stick with Philadelphia and the Dutch because I have my hands full with those two. I'm doing a book on Philadelphia foods. It's going to be called Pepper Pot City. And, um, and that's going to be an interesting one because it's going to be spicy. Um, but uh, yeah, right now what's happening in Philadelphia is that we've got uh, several restaurants, very high end, uh, Kensington Quarters in Kensington. Um, we've got, uh, uh, what is it, um, High Street on Market. Um, there's several restaurants where they're actually focusing on Pennsylvania Dutch cookery, but they're coming to me for their, for their sources because aside from writing about the food, I'm also growing the heirloom vegetables, and that's an important point. We've got 50, you know, 58 varieties of beans that are only found in Pennsylvania and only found in the Roughwood Seed Collection, which are endemic to our state. And half of them are Native American, which pleases me all the more because they're probably something that was also grown here in Maryland because these people traded seeds. <coughs> so um, this is the two-pronged thing that's happening. We've got um, people interested in growing the traditional foods and then restaurants interested in making dishes with those traditional uh, pumpkin, squash, whatever. <coughs> yeah. So... I'd like to bring up something that Dana mentioned earlier, and, and it's one of the things, it's, it, I think it is another way that you define Pennsylvania Dutch cooking, and that is the ubiquity of sauerkraut. Oh, yeah. As, uh, and we probably will be seated on our Thanksgiving tables here next week, um, but can you talk about how that became one of, if not the defining? Yeah. Um, way back when, uh, 1983, I did a book called Sauerkraut Yankees. And uh, I used that title because when the Confederate Army invaded Pennsylvania, um, uh, these guys were, this, I guess it was in the summertime, yes, it had to be like June or July, um, they, they, they got to, um, yeah, the, oh, you got it, that one. Uh, that's not the original edition, that's a later one. <laughs> this is actually corrected and better, so there you go. Um, what was that city? Oh, can't remember it. It's out in central west, west of Gettysburg. Anyhow, um, the, the, the southern troops take the town and they, um, they want sauerkraut. They had heard that this was a very healthy food. Well, you don't make sauerkraut in the summer. It's a, it was something you only made in the wintertime, and so the Dutch didn't give them their sauerkraut, so they burned the city down. Um, I, that's in my book. I can't remember the town, but anyhow... Um, that was a very famous um, uh, example of this sort of cultural thing, but the, this, the, the, the Confederates called the Pennsylvania Dutch the sauerkraut Yankees because they knew the Pennsylvania Dutch didn't like Yankees, New Englanders, um, and th that word would open up a fistfight, you know, that kind of thing. But anyhow, um, so I took this word that was really... Uh, uh, intended as an insult, and I turned it around because I realized, yeah, this is a stereotype, and it was intended to be negative, but there's a there is a there's a, a fragment of truth to this because what defines all those different Pennsylvania Dutch groups that don't get along? If you're Amish or Moravian or whatever, they all eat sauerkraut, and they eat it often, at more than once a month. <laughs> and uh, that's still true in Pennsylvania right now. 
And so I did a chapter in this book, I called it The Cabbage Curtain. Um, it's, it's this invisible wall of cabbage that defines the Dutch from the rest of the world. And um, yeah, they eat sauerkraut, and it's everywhere. And we have sauerkraut chocolate cakes. We've got, um, it's actually very good, surprisingly. I've had it. Um, and yeah, uh, sauerkraut was stuffed in goose for Christmas, and this becomes a stuffing for turkey. And then once the Dutch accepted the New England, the Yankee custom of Thanksgiving, we had Harvest Home, oh, that died out. But anyhow, so stuffing your turkey with sauerkraut is something that I think you do in Baltimore. And you know why? Because the Pennsylvania Dutch country, half of the Pennsylvania Dutch world lies west of the Susquehanna. Look at the counties, Cumberland, York, all of them. Those Pennsylvania Dutch were oriented towards Baltimore. They came down here to do their buying. They came down here to retire and live in the city once they turned their farms over to their children or grandchildren. So this Baltimore link is very important to the Dutch community, and there were Germans here as well. Mm -hmm. So there was an overlap. Uh, I, I actually, I, I mentioned in the book um, a restaurant that used to be in Reading, uh, uh, Kukler's Roost, and it was owned by some Swabians. Uh, this was like the, it was on top of Mount Penn in Reading. Um, it burned in 1919, but it was, it was like the high altar of Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. And um, the, the brother of the man who owned that restaurant owned a brewery in Baltimore. A brother-in-law owned, um, he was a butcher in Philadelphia. So you see, if you start looking at the genealogies of the Pennsylvania Dutch, there are all these connections that tie it all together. So that's, that's how it happens. I don't know. What's wrong with sauerkraut? Uh, Turkey's hard to digest. The sauerkraut will help. <laughs> so I think now's the time we could open this up if anybody has any questions that haven't been answered yet somehow. Oh. I've only scratched the surface. <laughs> so um, one thing that sort of has struck me uh, listening to, I guess you sort of maybe are growing the food ethnography. There's the, the Southern Foodways Alliance group down south that is sort of doing stuff, and Baltimore sort of fits. The question with the, you're talking about the heirloom um, seeds and the local right. stuff, and then also the, the culture sort of, there seems to be a nature-nurture question that I never thought of with food about what is the, the sort of local um, products that are grown versus the, the different groups and bringing their culture and language. So how do you sort of sort out, what, what would you say was the main driver for this Pennsylvania Dutch, sort of the, the groups coming over or the, the different uh, heirloom products that they were growing and using in that area? Um, well, I, I hope I understand your, your question um, clearly. First of all, when the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, settlers came here from Germany, many, uh, the, the Mennonites, for example, were sponsored by the Dutch Mennonites, the Holland Dutch Mennonites. And they were part of a seed exchange that bypassed England altogether. So we know from historical documentation that the Black Schifferstadt radish, which we've got in the garden at Ruffwood where I live, you know, they're, they're this long, from the 18th century, was being grown here. 
So by doing archival work, we've been able to identify historical, the heirloom varieties that they were eating. Now, um, the Roughwood Seed Collection is using uh, fields at Kutztown University. That's where we're doing our large commercial grow-outs for seed right now. And we're doing it at the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center. Now, they're going to take German out of that title down the road and turn it into Dutch because they're, ha but, you know, it's, it's a university. There are boards and there are people. Things don't happen overnight. But anyway, so we're growing their plants there essentially because they want to nurture Pennsylvania Dutch heirloom vegetables. So I would say 80% of what we're growing there really are from, that, from the area. What we don't have right now are little gophers, university graduate students, typing in all this data so that we can create um, profiles for each of the vegetables. A, how to grow them, where are they mentioned in old newspapers and almanacs and all that stuff so that it can just be, we can feed it out. I've done that with a couple of things, but I'm just one man, and we're talking about hundreds of plants. Uh, so what's going on at Kutztown is rather interesting because um, we're selling seed from their fields and we're splitting the royalties. So they're getting money back for letting us use their land, which is prime farmland, by the way, 39 acres. It's not being used for anything else. Well, I can't do 39 acres. That's more than we can handle, but we can handle two or three. Um, what happened is they've changed their president, and he came over to me um, and said, you know, I think we should have a horticultural program here where we, where we teach students how to grow heirloom vegetables that have all of these cultural traditions that tie in with the, with the university's mandate for the, for the Cultural History Center. And I said, right on, you've got the land. All we need is find some money, get a couple greenhouses going. And right now, we've got the, the students who are, there are students working the fields for us at Kutztown. They're interns, and they're being paid. And they're botany and biology majors, all right? They happen to like what they're doing in the fields a lot more than in the classroom. They're learning so much about plants that they never knew. But we show them how to rogue, we show them how to save seeds, we show them how, you know, 53 varieties of heirloom potatoes. Can they all be that different? Absolutely, and they taste different. So um, they're learning things about plants they wouldn't learn in the classroom. And I think the president at Kutztown realizes that this is a very valuable education, and it's not being taught anywhere else, not in cooking schools, nowhere. Um, and it's really hands-on. So. I would say, uh, I hope this is, this is a long answer for your question. It was a long question. Um, we're on the cusp of a lot of things happening, all of which right now look good to me. It's just a matter of how we'd line the ducks up and get it to work. Of course, there's always the big question of money. Where's it coming from? On the 19th of December, we've got... Um, uh, there are some friends of mine who are talking to a man in Philadelphia who's sort of our local Warren Buffett. Uh, got money coming out the kazoo, and he loves trees and greenhouses. And we're going to try and find a mutual interest. <laughs> okay. So I want to go back to the fish pepper yes. because you 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 know, have been sort of saving the seeds and and uh, you know caring for them. But how did you find the fish pepper? I want to know where that happened. I didn't know we had it. 
Well, where, where did it come from? I That's got it. It was, um, did you write an article in, one of the things I've read from Dr. Weaver is in the Organic Farming, you write a, the magazine, right? Or, no, no, no. Mother Earth News. Yeah, you write, I'm, a, yes. I'm, a, I'm an editor at Mother yeah. Earth News. And you yeah. write a, a profile of an individual vegetable. Or, That's right. And I think it was there. I believe it was. And if, it, if I did, it's online. You could go to MotherEarthNews.com, type in my name, and all the stuff will come up. So would you have contacted him directly? No. 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 We got it through, um, what's that seed catalog? They're not around anymore. Landreth. They are? Yeah, Landreth. Actually, the woman who owns Landreth wanted to buy the Ruffwood Seed Collection, but she was going through financial difficulties. Right. I really love her. I think she's a great person, and we need that company to stay in business. It's the oldest in the country. She's out in York County and struggling. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, what happened is, when I gave seeds to people through Seed Savers Exchange, other members of the exchange got the seeds and grew it. And then it starts showing up in seed catalogs. And a couple of growers in this area have it. So maybe that's how you... Well, for us, it was... I started asking everybody I could run into about fish pepper. Can you grow fish pepper? Have you heard about fish pepper? And eventually, uh, Denzel Mitchell, he, he kind of got the jump on... You know, he asked another farmer, like, what, is, you know, what do you think Spike would want? And, and he said, I know he wants fish pepper. So we had never met, and he planted fish pepper, and he got it growing actually here in the city. And... Um, he kind of we were at an event and he kind of came up and said I hear you're looking for fish pepper and I got it and that was the first time I, we, we got in the car uh, Isaiah was there we literally got in the car that day and, and ran over there to his and that was the first time I'd ever seen fish pepper it was in the field it was there it was green turning red it was an amazing moment and then from there we, we continued to spread the word Denzel was growing it Joan and Drew Norman who are here uh, from One Straw they really took the ball and ran with it and they become our our principal source for the fish pepper that goes into snake oil, and um, this year was a little bit of a rough one. But generally, we, you know, we were getting three thousand or more pounds of fish pepper from one straw farm, and that's become that's a lot of pepper. That's a lot of pepper. <laughs> Don't they? They will tell you that that's a lot of pepper. It's a lot of pepper picking. Because you can go to the Lincoln Earth Festival now and buy the plants. Yeah, I love. I mean, they're 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 out there. So. I feel the same way that he does. In that you know, it's it's out there, and and you know, friends of mine see it in the Midwest, and uh, I'd like to take some small, you know, uh, sense that we had something to do with well, that. Well, you, you see, um, there, you have to realize I'm also on the board of GMO Free Pennsylvania, and that I'm a plant gorilla. In other words, I, I don't believe in patenting and owning life forms. So the more people who have the fish pepper, the less likely Monsanto is going to get its hands on it. All right? Um, so there is a method to this madness. Um, so I'm perfectly pleased that it's everywhere because this is exactly the intention. Now, I can take... I breed plants, too. I take heirlooms and create my own designer veggies, okay? Um, I can take any patented vegetable and create a look-alike, taste-alike. Just change the genes a little bit. It's outside the patent. I don't know why they bother. 
But anyway, that's another that's another lecture. Uh oh, oh my, that gets broadcast. Yeah, well, I'm there in the crosshairs of Monsanto anyway, so let it go. Would you mind just giving three sort of classic examples of Pennsylvania Dutch food? Give me three dishes that represent totally. What I'll tell. Like. Uh, I'll tell you what has happened. That's a complicated answer. What has happened is that there are a lot of foods that have gone mainstream, and we don't think of them as Dutch anymore. I can name pretzels. Every Pennsylvania Dutch baker knew how to make pretzels. Who thinks of them as Dutch anymore? Okay, schnickerdoodles. There's a cookie that a lot of people know. They make it at Christmas time. That came out of the Dutch culture. It's actually schnitnoodle. It's a corruption of a, of a Dutch name, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you all probably have heard of shoe fly pie. That's iconic, although it was created at the U.S. Centennial in 1876. So, and it wasn't created by anyone Pennsylvania Dutch that we know of. It just became a Pennsylvania Dutch food because it's cheap. It's easy to make. Molasses and crumbs in a pie shell. You can feed a lot of guys, and you know, it was a cake originally. It was called Centennial Cake for dipping in coffee. The, this, the, the wet bottom is a later, you know, twist on this thing. Um, but we have, well, actually, if you're Pennsylvania Dutch and you live in Pennsylvania, the iconic dish, the national dish, is stuffed pig stomach. You ask. <laughs> And actually, it's a great big sausage. That's all. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. I made it for some chefs in Philadelphia. They came out to the house, and they were blown away. You, may, you can get it in, in Alsace, also in high-end restaurants. But of course, they put truffles in it and things of that sort. But it's all the same thing. It's just a big sausage inside of a casing. That's it. And I, you know, one of the amazing things about this book is that when you read it, A, it's written from a, a point of view, which I think you're hearing tonight, which I love, uh, somebody that cares about it, that has, you know, that is willing to call bullshit when they see it, um, and it has a deep connection to the cooking. Also, cooking that is not simple or simplistic as, as it's been kind of portrayed, but there's a lot of technique here, and we had a lot of fun kind of, A, trying to piece some things together, but then understanding this is a nuanced, as you said, diverse cuisine. Very and there's a lot there to understand and wrap your head around. And um, you know, finally, I just love the writing in this book. It's it's um, it's it's a good read. And I think in this era of, of cookbooks that end up on coffee tables or wherever, uh, certainly not of much use in any in any uh, to me. A lot of times, um, I always look for at least one thing that I can kind of um, you know take away. And, and this book is full of them. I mean, I, I I'm, yeah, I I also tread on some very dangerous ice when I when I went into class in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. We don't talk about class in America. Well, who was that woman that came up to you and said you you were Oh, that's she said right. I'm, I'm I'm Moravian, I don't. Yeah. Um, when I was doing autographing this book in the Moravian bookstore in in um, uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it's Christmas, they have the Chris Kindle Fest and all that rigmarole. Um, the whole store was involved in talking about Pennsylvania Dutch culture because I was there autographing books and there were pros and cons. The people who don't like Amish cooking, you know, blah blah. Um, and I wasn't going to argue with these people. 
But anyway, this woman came up and she's looking at the book and she's like down over the top of her glasses. And um, uh, she, I said, well, you know, I really worked hard. Uh, look through the book, it's got beautiful pictures. I worked hard to, to try to balance the, um, oops, it was a wine glass on it, yes. Anyway, um, I worked hard to, to, to try to get representation from all the different groups, be even-handed in my approach to this, because, you know, it's touchy. And she's looking at the book, and she just sort of, well, she had this long fur coat, which annoyed me, <laughs> for reasons I don't need to go into. But anyhow, um, she just she said, oh, well, uh, I'm not Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm a Moravian. We are Germans. And she walked away. I put that in the book. <laughs> so building off what you just said, when, when one says Pennsylvania Dutch, does that mean Pennsylvania German? Because some people Deutsch use is yeah. German, some people right? use so, those two um, use those two terms interchangeably. All right. Is but, there a difference to you? But we we uh, I think there is a group of of us now who write about the culture. We feel there is a very large nuanced difference between those Moravians who who they're, 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 the reason the Moravians think that way, and, and, and Anne Hark was a Moravian, the lady who wrote Hex Marks the Spot, so she brought her prejudice to her books and her writing. Pennsylvania Dutch was lowbrow. Pennsylvania German is upper class. It's who we are, we they, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the Moravian religion is based on pietism, German pietism. They're their, their cultural anchor is Herrenhut in Germany. In other words, they view themselves as an extension of intellectual Europe. That's their, that's their whole, Europe is their, that's the, the high altar for where they come from. The Pennsylvania Dutch nuance is different. They don't care what's across the water. It's right here next door. It's, we are a product of this land and I asked a woman, it's in this book, I asked a Berks County lady, I said, are, this was a baited question, I said, are you Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania German? I wanted to get this conversation going. And she thought a minute, she says, I'm an American. Okay. That's the difference. And so we use Pennsylvania Dutch with the idea that this is a new world culture, that we're an American culture, we're not an imported thing, we're not a hybrid, um, we're not anything other than just provincial locals, rubes from Pennsylvania. <laughs> but with the roots in Germany, originally. Originally, of course. Yeah. That's why you but have your own name. We need our own name. We need, we need to come up with a better name for who we are. Yeah. Because I think Pennsylvania Dutch confuses people because they think of windmills and wooden shoes and chocolate. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I can understand that. But all... But Pennsylvania is what we say in dialect. We're Pennsylvanish, which is a dialect we're Pennsylvanians, but we use this dialect word. I don't know. I haven't come up with a good name for us yet, but I think this is something we need to work on because I think it's a PR problem, definitely for the world outside. So we've talked about the relationship that 
the food shed family, I guess, has with the fish pepper. Um, but I guess I was wondering, you've also mentioned 58 varieties of beans and hundreds of other right. varieties of heirloom plants. And I was wondering if there were specific people or groups of people who identify with the Pennsylvania Dutch culture who are also kind of working to disseminate. Yes, there are people, growers in Pennsylvania, who are very much interested in this. Are there particular plants or particular dishes maybe that you would... Well, I can think of Alex Wenger in Lidditt, who has a farm near Lidditz. He's a 20-something plant genius who's growing Pennsylvania Dutch heirlooms and selling them to um, restaurants who want to do local cuisine, all right? Um, but he comes to me for the stories because I've done the research. He's also growing out seed for the Roughwood Seed Collection, so he's one of our growers, one of our trusted growers, I would say. But there, he's just one out of, I don't know, there could be 40 different growers. Well, now, we've got 600 uh, certified organic farms in Pennsylvania, and for each one of those, we've probably got 10 to 20 organic farms that are on that model, but they're not certified. And a lot of these little guys are also interested in growing the regional stuff. Why? Because we, we can do it in Pennsylvania, because we can niche ourselves and sell to New York, Washington, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. We can't do this in Kansas. It's just too far from any place. There's no market. But we can specialize, and so that's why it's happening. And Pennsylvania still, you know, we're the th number three in the country in agriculture. We're the biggest agricultural state on the East Coast. And this is a very, this is part of why this is happening. I'm sure you, there are a lot of different definitions to what could be Pennsylvania Dutch cooking, but I'm wondering where you draw the line as to what you consider genuine, what you put in the cookbook, what you think is... Well, I'll tell you, cookbooks are an editorial process, and um, in many ways they create a false image of the culture. Because um, I talk in this book about something I call the Amish table, um, because the Amish table is several different things. There's the tourist Amish table, and then there's the real Amish table, what Amish people eat every day. And, and that's pizza, that's uh, chicken Kamenskis, whatever. Um, you know, they, uh, so there is a reality that doesn't get into cookbooks because it's sifted out. Um, when I, I, when I'm looking at um, uh, recipes, for example, what makes them authentic? Well, what's authentic? That's a very personal definition of reality. Uh, I don't pass judgment on that as a food ethnographer. There are a lot of things that I have collected that I don't like, but they're part of the reality. For example, um, I have a cottage cheese tart that came from Cumberland County, and I'm accepting its authenticity because it came from a woman who made it, and she died in 1950, um, so she got this from her mother. And this is cottage cheese, basically a custard, but it's flavored with a rose water, and it's decorated on top with little bits of rosehip jam. I think it's a genius recipe. 
I don't see that appearing in a lot of farmhouse farmhouses, but this lady made it. So what is Pennsylvania Dutch? It's the sum total of all these little parts. It, the cooking is different in Cumberland County from York, from Lancaster, from Berks, um, on and on. It, uh, that's, that's probably one of the difficulties we have in trying to make a soundbite out of this culture when it just doesn't work. It's too big and too complicated, and there are too many different variant parts. It's really a, a, um, a lot of regionalisms all stuck together because when I go up into the Lewistown area, I mean, we've got fish pie. They make it up in central Pennsylvania. It's not made with fish. There's no fish in it. It doesn't come near it. It's just called fish pie. So, um, but I love these local dishes because they're, they're, they're like indigenous to certain valleys. Fish pie is really very popular in the Mahantongo Valley. I know how to pronounce it even. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's like all these little, it's, just, it's, it's like local history all stuck together. You go over the mountains, and then it's another story. You go across the river, it's another story. So um, we have a saffron belt in Lebanon County and in Montgomery County, where people put saffron in everything, um, even beef, pot pie. I mean, yellow beef. But um, so, whoops, is that a warning? <laughs> <laughs> the hand is on the wall. <laughs> um, but anyway. The, the authenticity thing is really uh, we go around on, the, on our board uh, at Keystone we go around and around on that because uh, one of our board members is um, uh, a, a nutritional anthropologist at Penn talk about heavyweight food uh, what's authentic she deals with people in Center City uh, you know diets that are all screwed up because they're eating stuff out of junk you know pots uh, boxes and what have you. So, I mean, we can come at this food subject from lots of different professional angles, and we're never going to come up with an answer. It's just going to be a compromise. And every book that we write is a compromise, because it, it creates a picture. And today, with, with, I mean, with every, if you look on the internet at how many food pictures have been taken with cell phones, there are all these flat shots, you know what I'm talking about. It's like uh, we're, uh, the, the eye eats first. The camera is defining the cuisine now. Food, when I was at Gourmet, um, there were chefs that they wanted to publish their recipes, and there were dishes that simply don't look good in a photograph dog's mess, you know, and there's nothing you can do to it, so it gets left out. But this is where this authenticity thing comes into play. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. And we have to, I guess, people like me who know what, what's going on and, and know where these lines, these fine lines are, I guess it's my responsibility to keep correcting and, and, and making sure that we keep it in balance. I, he's absolutely right about the comment. I, I call a spade a spade in this book, and um, I made some enemies. But um, but you know, I stick to my guns. Uh, I, I I speak the truth as I see it. I may be wrong, and I'm willing to be teachable. What else can I do? 
So um, I guess my question has to do with what happens to this culture as we're sort of moving forward. You've spent all of this time um, ensuring a future for these heirloom vegetables and then an, an obviously insane amount of time sort of um, documenting an entire food culture that is massive and that is clearly so diverse. Um, but one thing that doing that can do is that it it's now kind of getting out into the world and yeah. there will be uh, Pennsylvania Dutch recipes prepared by people who aren't. Um, and I guess my question is sort of, you know, what happens to a, a food culture that was documented as, as you said, as it's prepared in the home when it, when it leaves the home? And sort of what do you see it, happening to Pennsylvania yeah. Dutch as it enters restaurants and, it, and who will cook it? Well, I'll tell you, um, that's a good, very good question. First of all, I think, uh, you know, let's, let's go to Europe for an example. Um, for a long time, even in Ireland and, and Wales, they, they thought the traditional culture was going to die out. People weren't speaking Irish and Welsh anymore. But the young kids picked up on it because their parents couldn't speak it. And it became cool. And it just bounced back to life. And now we've got all the, you know, the, the Irish dance, the troops, and one thing, river dancing, all that stuff. It just bounced back. This is what's happening in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. The young, the young guys, the farmers, don't want to plant soybeans and, and GMO corn. They want, to, they want to niche themselves and grow the heirlooms and make a fortune. Uh, there's a, a farmer in Kutztown who was selling his heirloom tomatoes $24 a quart wholesale in New York. Now that pays a lot of bills, and he drives a bicycle. He doesn't have a car, because he's a Mennonite, his old order. Well, has a horse. But anyway, um, so what's happening, I think the young people are looking at, they're not really looking at it from the standpoint, I'm going to preserve the culture. I'm going to take what the culture has given me and create my own, my own new way with it. But that's how cultures evolve. There's nothing wrong with that. We can't say that Pennsylvania Dutch culture was this thing that existed in 1869 or whatever. So um, uh, it's, it's changing. And I think you're absolutely going to see Pennsylvania Dutch food in restaurants in Arizona and places like that. And it's going to be this, this style. Um, and I think it's up to the chefs to create it. Because the other ones are going to have to be able to, to, to translate the, this home cooking um, into something that it's plate-oriented, as opposed to one dish in the middle of the table and everyone helps themselves. Although that's not a bad idea for restaurants. Some people are doing that now. Um, there's a guy in New Orleans who, uh, from Panama who serves all of his food that way. He thinks it's new. He's got a blue mohawk. Uh, but it, this is just old farmhouse fare, okay? So um, I think what's happening right now, it's very gray and, and it's amorphous. I think in 10 years we're going to look back on this and realize that this was a huge period of change and a lot of good things are going to come out of this. Guys like this, he's doing great work. Here in Baltimore, I didn't even know about this. And I'm very proud of what he's doing because this is exactly the, the, the right kind of message, bringing local food into the restaurant and making, creating good, healthy food with it. Um, uh, 
I mean, we could go on. Am I keeping these people too? No, I think this, this will probably be our last question, and then we'll. Uh... I'm wondering whether there's an there's an emerging opening for I go certified organic things. I just made it delivered tonight to to Woodbury, and you know clearly the heirlooms are more flavorful. They're they're for the most part much more nutrient dense, and I'm just wondering whether there's an opening for folks who are eating you know, highly hybridized crops that don't have a whole lot of nutrients in them, that don't have a whole lot of flavor in them, whether this new emerging science that shows that flavor actually tracks nutrients, whether there's going to be like a new opening for folks to begin to appreciate or appreciate even more heirloom vegetables because they're going to recognize that, that they're actually feeding their bodies with these heirloom vegetables. Well, they we can already, taste the difference and the yeah, science tells well, them we've the got the data it. on that. If you heirloom plants, food plants raised organically are more nutritionally rich than any of the hybrids raised chemically. I mean, we've got data on this. We did at Pan, uh, at Drexel, for example, um, we took hybrid tomatoes raised commercially and heirloom tomatoes um, in order for you to get the, the same nutrients from the, the, um, air, the heirloom tomato. You had to, a pound of heirloom tomato equal to a pound and a half of hybrid. So what's happening is subliminally we're eating more food because we're not getting enough. Yeah. Our brains our are, know. right, our bodies know, little bells are going off, and so this, this uh, obesity thing isn't all about junk food. It's about empty food. Now, we know this. Um, whether the right people are going to end up with this food, like folks in the inner city eating Chinese chain, takeout, which is not good for them. We all know that. But their choices are very limited. How can we bring the, the, the good stuff down a couple notches? Well, we're working on that. One thing that Keystone is going to do once we get our act together is we're going to go all over Pennsylvania and we're going to, we're going to find the local growers and we're going to list them and we're going to become like a good housekeeping seal of approval um, that this farmer is growing things organically and it's done right. This is local and heirloom grain and there are plenty of bakers who want spelts and emmer wheat and you know, it's a long list. They can't get it. Our seed, our, I have heirloom grains, our seeds are more valuable as food than they are as, as, as a seed crop right now because of the demand. Um, so. Uh, there's a great imbalance right now in what's happening in the agricultural front. Uh, we have PASA in Pennsylvania, the uh, Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, and they've been very active in promoting uh, local sustainable farming. We've got a lot of Mennonite farmers who are locked into GMOs and can't get out because they're so in debt. Um, so there is, there's a lot of problems out there that need to be fixed. Uh, it, it may take 10 or 15 years for a correction to, to, to fall into place, but I, I, I'm with you about the nutritional rate. And I would like to see, you know, when I went to communist Poland back in the 70s, they told you on every menu what was the nutritional value of that dish. Whether it was true or not is another thing, but at least they were making an attempt. It may come to that someday. Here. I mean, that may be a selling point. Turn a negative into a plus, you know. Well, I think that is going to do it, at least for the conversation. We do have 
there will be Pennsylvania Dutch food served at, at least at Artifact tonight. Uh, one of them is uh, a couple of dishes are out of sauerkraut Yankees. Oh my. I would love for you to, to tell everybody if you could read the dialect. I need my brilla. Let me see. What it was just going to sound so much better if you say it. What is this? What did you do? <laughs> oh, dem Johann Furst sei Grumbierer mit Senf. Um, John Furst's potatoes with mustard. <laughs> so we must. Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch uses dative uh, possessive. It's very archaic in German. They laugh when they hear it. That and many other things. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you guys for being part of this conversation. Thank you. Uh, and I, should I mention the yes. other book? Okay. You can get Country Scrapple online. It's out of print. Uh, it's a book all about Scrapple. In print is Culinary Ephemera, which is all about paper, you know, uh, menus, postcards, uh, the whole, all that. And also, Pennsylvania Dutch Country Cooking is available uh, from Amazon. It's out of print. What, you have a hundred, the hundred, uh, the vegetable book? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's print on demand, a hundred vegetables and where they came from. Great book. Yes. We have that. It's a little, it's a, they call it a Bible cut because you can take it to bed and read it by the lamplight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thanks again for joining us tonight at Artifacts for our Origin Speaker Series. With thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.